0: I see my main task for this afternoon as putting some Thomists on the table for discussion who are not writing centuries before the scientific revolution or, like us, trying to make sense of the scientific revolution uh, centuries uh, after it occurred, but who were dealing with it as it was unfolded. Uh, and I hope that will be of some use to our uh, proceedings as we go forward. So the rejection of the Aristotelian account of matter is fundamental to the shift towards what we think of as post-Renaissance modern thought. The notion of prime matter-related issues were among the scholastic doctrines that that came under fiercest criticism during the scientific revolution. The question that I hope to address is how the proponents of these ancient and medieval traditions of thinking about the fundamental principles of material bodies confronted these early modern developments. This question helps us think with greater care about what was at stake in the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment. The scholastics were presented by their opponents as bookish professors, slaves to Aristotle, uh, closed off to the new discoveries about nature that we associate with Galileo, Descartes, Robert Boyle, and Isaac Newton. Uh, Francis Bacon actually describes scholastics as spiders, generating these complex webs out of their bodies rather than going to get things like ants and bees. One of the major Enlightenment encyclopedists in 18th century France, Jean-Laurent d'Alembert, described Francis Bacon uh, as, at the head of the illustrious personages who would illuminate the world in the 17th century and beyond. Instead of thinking of Bacon as advancing a millennia-long discussion about nature and scientific inquiry, as I think many of us would be inclined to see today, Uh, D'Alembert described Bacon as being born in the depths of the most profound night, fully aware that philosophy did not yet exist. For D'Alembert, it was not until the late 17th century that Newton created physics. Thus, any attempt to defend ancient natural philosophy after Bacon and Newton, let alone the learning of the medieval schools, was, for D'Alembert and many of his colleagues, foolish, obscurantist, and probably tended towards... The persecution of genuine scientific freedom. What's interesting is that even defenders of medieval scholastics have at times seen the engagement with the new science by the schoolmen as disastrous, and it's a very you know, helpful narrative to account for sort of what happened in the seventeenth century. For these scholars, Albert the Great, Aquinas, and others were worthy of defense, but their followers in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries failed rather profoundly, as the great neo-scholastic historian Maurice DeWolf said a century ago, the scholastics should have at least followed with attention the revolution in the physical sciences and realized without delay that the destruction of the scientific theories of the Middle Ages did not at all affect the great organic doctrines of traditional scholasticism. But the regrettable attitude taken up by the Aristotelians of the 16th and 17th centuries was very remote from what the events of the time demanded. He continues... Peripatetics like Melanchthon and Cremonini refused to look at the heavens through the telescope and they cut a ludicrous figure in the controversies with the Cartesians. The, the neo-scholastic historian concludes, scholasticism succumbed in the 17th century for want of men, not for want of ideas. De DeWolf's story sees the decline and fall of scholasticism in the early modern period as a result of the failures of the scholastics during that period. To challenge the Enlightenment and refine the neo-scholastic narratives of slavish, closed-minded 17th-century Thomists, this afternoon I will discuss the work of three Dominican Thomists of the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, Antoine Godin, Serafino Piccinardi, and Salvatore Rosselli. In his oft-republished textbook on Thomist philosophy, Godin defended Aquinas' natural philosophy in response to René Descartes, the Christian Epicurean Pierre Gassendi, and others in the second half of the 17th century. Goudin died in Paris in 1695 after teaching philosophy and theology in a number of French cities, including Paris, where he served as prior of the ancient house of Saint-Jacques. Goudin is not well known, few scholastics of his time are, but he is widely quoted Scholastics throughout the 18th and even 19th centuries. Serafino Piccinardi, even less well known, taught metaphysics at the University of Padua from 1669 until 1679, and then theology from 1681 until 1689, dying a few years later. Uh, And his work was, uh, the title was A Doctrinal or Dogmatic Peripatetic Christian Philosophy. So these are defenders of the old way. There's arguably a few more innovative friars, but I wanted to see how the defenders operated. Finally, Salvatore Rosselli lived a century later, in the mid-18th century, and taught at the College of St. Thomas at the Minerva in Rome, where he died in 1784. His work, the Summa Philosophica, according to the mind of St. Thomas Aquinas, played an important role in the revival of scholasticism a century later by Pope Leo XIII. As most in this room would probably expect, these three Dominicans did not merely quote Aristotle or express shock that anyone would depart from the Aristotelian tradition. In fact, the Dominicans of this period are quite explicit about how much the scholastics improved upon and even corrected Aristotle over the course of the centuries. They did so in reply to the dominant narratives from the famous quarrel of the ancients and the moderns of the 17th century. Both sides of which assumed a long period of darkness between antiquity and modernity. The early modern scholastics, instead, saw philosophy as continuing, excuse me, as developing in a more or less continuous fashion and viewed the schoolmen, whether Albert the Great, SCOTUS, or Aquinas, as elevating Aristotelianism according to the light of Christian faith and through the clarifications that occurred in the centuries of university debate. Indeed, a key feature of each of these textbooks in the 17th and 18th centuries is their engagement uh, with new scientific experiments and theories alongside references not only to Aristotle and Aquinas but also to Cicero, Pliny, the Church Fathers, and others. Uh, just as an interesting example, Rosselli was citing Benjamin Franklin's experiments on electricity within just a couple of decades uh, of the Americans' published findings. All of these experiences of nature throughout the centuries are brought to bear on their discussions. As far as matter theory is concerned, we see that our assumptions about the scholastics of this period, still perhaps shaped in lingering ways by uh, the Enlightenment philosophers, have obscured our vision. There's a widespread account in the literature that the rejection of atomism, or more broadly, corpuscularianism, right thinking of all physical change as a result of the shape and motion of minute particles, small bodies, or corpuscles, that that whole disagreement, that whole argument, is animated primarily by theological concerns. The scholastics are said to have been hostile to corpuscularianism because of the threat this teaching poses to the doctrine of transubstantiation. While this was a factor, the Aristotelians of the 17th century, and particularly the Thomas under examination here, saw themselves not merely uh, as doing what is necessary to defend the doctrines of the faith, Indeed, these tomes did not even see themselves as defending old philosophical teachings against new modern scientific teachings. Rather, they saw that there was a controversy in the ancient world between Aristotle and materialists among the pre-Socratics like Democritus and post aristotilians like Epicurus and Lucretius that had been reawakened in their own day. So that's how they saw the shape of their moment. In a contest with new Epicureans, these Dominicans sought to rearticulate the anti-materialist and anti-reductionistic principles for thinking of material bodies that were set forth by Aristotle. Now I'm not going to deny that there was arguably some stubbornness, perhaps most evident in the defense of the four elements, but we can't forget the philosophical stakes even here. Goudin, Piccinardi, and Rosselli sought to answer Descartes, the Epicurean, Gassendi and others by arguing that they were not really explaining the phenomena of nature, especially things like substantial change and animal experience, but rather were explaining away such phenomena. So starting with the elements, each of these Dominicans insisted on the existence of the four common elements, earth, water, air, and fire. I think that there were resources in the broader Latin Christian tradition for refining the idea of the elements that perhaps were not really taken up in this kind of moment of crisis. For instance, back in the 12th century, William of Conch spoke about particles, and he uses that term, as minimal components that, when joined together, constitute a single large object. For William, the four elements still relate to the four primary qualities of hot, cold, wet, and dry, but for him, the four elements were merely classes, which I think is an interesting way of thinking about it. When charged by his interlocutor in this 12th century dialogue with secretly falling back on the opinion of the Epicureans about Adams, William responded that all philosophical doctrines have some truth mixed in with it. And that the real problem with Epicureanism was that everything was given over to chance and the swerve. So that's what he saw as the central problem with Epicurean materialism. A century later, Aquinas' teacher, Albertus Magnus, acknowledged minimal parts, or minima naturalia, the kind of smallest parts of things like flesh, where if it were divided further, would no longer be flesh. The notion of minima naturalia was extended to the elements where we could think of the smallest physical parts of earth or water. What's interesting is that Albert says that Democritus's major error was not thinking of bodies as having small parts or particles. Rather, the problem with the ancient atomists was not recognizing that the form of even minimal flesh and prime matter are even more fundamental. So it's the lack of a hylomorphic account of the particles that he focused upon. Our 17th century Dominicans engaged in new experiments that cast some doubt on the traditional view of the four primary qualities and the four elements, but argued that the evidence for these ideas remained strong. Now, part of the issue was that some of the main experiments of that time were coming out of uh, kind of latter-day alchemy or chemistry with a Y in the scholarship, Uh, and that was not the chemistry of John Dalton or Antoine Lavoisier. Chemists argued that the elements were not the four elements, but rather sulfur, salt, mercury, phlegm, and the dark earth that is the result of chemical analysis, These Dominicans did not seriously object to the procedures, but thought that these five elements could be analyzed further to the four common elements. Moreover, some substances could not be resolved into these five chemical elements. So there's this really interesting idea that all sublunar bodies have all four elements, and they thought that the five chemical elements didn't uh, have that sort of universality. Most interesting, perhaps, is the argument that after the chemical fire was applied in these procedures, the bodies that resulted were at times very different from the original. The tomes believe that the chemists might not be taking into consideration these important changes, perhaps substantial changes, when explaining the original substance with reference to the liquids and gases that resulted. So if you're having a substantial change in this chemical analysis, we have to take that into consideration. While well, some scholars like DeWolf have suggested that the four elements could have been easily abandoned, others like William Wallace and Joseph Bobic have suggested that the problem was not the conceptualization of the elements, but rather the identification and number of them. In other words, at least in chemistry, we now have, say, hydrogen rather than air, or carbon rather than earth, and all the elements on the periodic table even if we might want to talk about the components of carbon like protons, neutrons, and electrons as elemental, the argument remains that uh, for these scholars, the scholastics just didn't go far enough in their analysis. Our 18th century Dominican Rosselli indicates that that story doesn't entirely work, seems to me. One of the objections to the classical account of the four elements was that experiments on some metals indicate that they do not consist of air. The objector suggests that if earth, water, fire, and air are really elements, then they should be in all complex substances or mixtures. And you've already heard about the technical character of the term mixture in uh, Professor McLaughlin's talk. In Rosselli's reply, he does not object to the premise that all the elements are in all complex material bodies. He agrees with that but argues on the basis of an experiment of Isaac Newton that metals, when they are liquefied, do emit some fumes. This indicates to Rosselli that air is, in some way, a component of metals. Furthermore, he says that there must be a significant amount of elemental water in metals, which accounts for the fact that they melt. So their liquefiability. Otherwise, something more proportionally earthen would just crumble. At any rate, this seems to show that the conceptualization of elements is quite different than modern chemistry. Instead of hydrogen and oxygen as elements of water or sodium and chlorine as distinct elements of table salt, they want an account of complex substances that all various, are all various harmonies or temperaments of all the elements. What was even more at stake here is that the elements were supposed to account not only for the constitution of complex bodies, but be directly associated with the primary qualities that accounted for the changes in the phenomena of nature. I think this is a major point. They they talk about the elements as tangible, uh, sensible, explaining these sensible qualities, uh, and that's a really driving concern, at least in the 17th century. The heating up of a log brings about a flame. The drying out of an animal body leads to aging and natural death. The arrangement of all of these active and passive qualities in nature were key to the controversy with the 17th century corpuscularians. It is worth noting that Descartes and Newton did not embrace the full Epicurean account. That's a really important point. For both, God provided motion to the particles. Uh, Descartes is quite clear uh, that particles are at least indefinitely divisible. But nonetheless, they both used minute particles or corpuscles to explain most phenomena. Newton's particles were solid and indestructible in the optics. The early modern Thomists were not satisfied that explaining all of material change through these small bodies, especially these small, solid, hard bodies, could account for primary qualities in nature like heat or secondary qualities like the fluidity of water, these qualitative and tangible experiences. Besides the explanation of the qualities of material bodies, one might also suggest that the four elements play a more similar role to today's states of matter than to the fundamental particles or chemical elements. While I think there is something to this account, it might account for why four elements is something quite ancient, uh, even in Indian uh, philosophy and so on. With Earth playing the role of solids, water of liquids, and so on, it isn't fully satisfactory either. When Rosselli explained the cause of ice, for instance, he said that thinking of it as merely water solidified by extreme cold was insufficient. Now I want to note that Godin, a century earlier, said that ice is nothing but water hardened by excessive cold. So ice formation was a big debate among these Thomas. For Rosselli, freezing or congelatio of water is not merely from the coldness of the air or the loss of heat in the water, but from, quote, particles having the force to produce this freezing. In other words, there must be small parts, particule, of common water that have the quality of dryness, which is the basis for solidity in the Aristotelian account. So it seems that simply reducing the function of the four elements to what we are doing with the four states of matter is insufficient. The dryness of earth and components in common water was a key factor for Rosselli in explaining the phenomena of ice, and there were many, at least in the Aristotelian tradition, who thought of what we see as mere changes of state as substantial changes from one kind of thing to the other. The elements thus thus do not seem to be a primitive version of chemical elements or fundamental particles, nor were they entirely a stand-in for the four states of matter. Rather, for these three Dominicans, the four elements are unmixed or simple bodies into which things could at least theoretically be resolved. The example frequently given is that when an animal dies, there ends up being dust, earthen humors, fluids that flow, and other humors that evaporate into the air. These things do not exist as dust in the mixed body, just like fire does not exist in the log before it is burned. Instead, despite the fact that these Thomists argue that we never encounter elements in their absolute purity in our experiences, the four elements are still those other sensible tangible bodies into which more complex bodies can be resolved and which account for the qualities like coldness or dryness and consequent qualities like heaviness that mixed bodies have. So Uh, To kind of overstate the point a bit, we can talk about this later, it seems to me that when looking for scholastic discussions of particles beyond ordinary sensation, one should probably not first turn to scholastic discussions of the elements. Just a suggestion. So the second point about particles and minima naturalia. You may have noticed that William of Conch and Salvatore Rosselli referred to particles. Uh, and this might be straightforward to all of you but uh, my students are really surprised uh, when that kind of language is uh, present in this earlier tradition the first use of particle in the English language I was just checking this a couple days uh, yesterday according to the Oxford English Dictionary is from a 1398 translation of a 13th century Franciscan talking about the small parts of compound bodies uh, kind of scintilla of fire and so on and so forth these discussions of particles were almost certainly more frequent in the 17th century than in the 12th and 13th centuries, not only because of the debate with the corpuscular theory, but also in light of new experiences and experiments. These Dominicans refer to their own observations through microscopes, and this is why I was a little frustrated with the Wolf's discussion of scholastics not looking through telescopes, they acknowledged their apparently homogeneous earthen solid bodies that there were pores in those bodies. They talked about how particles could be perceived in those pores. So the porousness is something that they observed. Serafino piccinardi our 17th-century Dominican from Padua, directly engaged the question of why Thomas continued to object to any form of Thomism, excuse me, atomism when they admitted the existence of particles as well as these minima naturalia, these smallest bodies of flesh, bone, water, etc. In reply, Pichinardi argues that the minima naturalia and atoms are fundamentally different. And here's some of the distinctions he drew. Minima naturalia are always potentially divisible, at least in terms of their extension. Atoms are, by definition, indivisible. Minima naturalia of the elements are not already divided. You can divide them, but they're not already divided. One can uh, divide a microscopic drop of water at any point, whereas atoms are already separated from one another in the heap. Minima naturalia, these particles, are the same in species as that which they compose, whereas atoms are entities distinct from their compound. Piccinardi also points out something that is not always touched on in the scholarly literature on minima naturalia, which tries to link that discussion to our discussions of particles and atoms. For the schoolmen, there are minima plants and minima animals. In other words, there are complex substances that are as small as those entities can naturally be. In other words, there is never a mature elephant that is the size of a spider. And so that's the function of this minima discourse just like there's a maxima of spiders. Uh, the scholastic category is paired... Uh, is, pardon, so the connection to ancient atomism obviously breaks down when we were talking about minima elephants or oak trees. In reply to the connection between ancient atomism and Aristotelianism, Piccinardi takes up the important issue discussed at length in Needham's essay that some of you may have read and in Professor McLaugh- McLaughlin's lecture about how the components of a mixture are found uh, in that mixture uh, in a particular way. Aristotle and Aquinas are committed to the real unity of complex substances. And Aquinas discusses that uh, this unity requires that the elements are not present formally or actually, uh, but in this virtual way according to their powers. That is, they do not remain as independent, those smaller substances, but instead, according to their powers, that are harmonized in different ways in different substances. Uh, what's interesting is that, as uh, the previous lecture pointed out, there were Aristotelians like Avicenna and Averroes who had a much more substantial view of the presence of elements in a mixture. But Thomas had very similar objections to that position as they did to atomism. As Pichinardi put it, it is impossible that there are many substantial forms simultaneously in the same matter or composite. Neither elements nor atoms can exist in their full substantiality in a mixture. Inorganic and organic substances are continuous for Pichinardi. If indivisible atoms or substantial elements exist in a complex entity, then that entity is a mere aggregate, a heap of its minima, rather than a unified substance. So then to the final point here, what's really going on in this anti-atomism? Once it is clear that there are real differences between atomism and Thomist accounts of the elements and minima naturalia, one can turn to some of the fundamental objections to ancient uh, and modern atomism in these works. Our 17th century Parisian Thomist Antoine Godin pointed to the fact that no one had observed atoms or corpuscles, so sense experience does not require such a conclusion in natural philosophy. Now, of course, he acknowledged there were ways in which sense experience must be corrected by human understanding and reason, but he thought that the arguments of Gassendi and Descartes offered no really compelling reasons to posit such uh, invisible entities that were fundamental for explaining all of the changes in material bodies. At this point, according to Godin, the best they could do was telling just-so stories, as in the case of explaining magnetism by way of hooked or corkscrew shaped particles. This is the sort of thing that the Thomas of that period were a bit contemptuous of. Godin and other anti-corpuscularians of this era made much of the problems posed by atomism to any satisfactory account of living things. living things, this is a really critical part of this whole debate. We experience animals as acting in a way that indicates sense, imagination, memory, and the power to estimate things that are desirable or fearful. Famously, Descartes says that these effects of what the Aristotelians saw as rooted in a sensitive soul and living bodies were basically illusory because beasts are highly complex machines. Godin saw the inability to account for living things as an exemplification of corpuscularianism's tendency to explain away rather than to explain our fundamental experiences of the natural world. The Dominicans also point to the implausibility of corpuscularian accounts of animal reproduction. If material reality is nothing but matter in motion and the texturing of these corpuscles by the laws of motion, it is surprising, they said, that the corpuscles in the womb of a female horse always end up becoming textured in a horse-like way. Besides the objection from living things, Godin pointed to aspects of even inorganic bodies that led to serious problems for atomists. The indivisible, indestructible atoms of the ancient materialists are not possible, he thought, because every extended, quantified body is necessarily divisible. Indeed, Godin says, quantity is essentially extension into parts, so why could one not divide one of these parts from another? He takes up the reply of some atomists that the atoms are divisible mathematically or conceptually, but the atoms are so small that they are not physically or naturally divisible. And he acknowledges that that's true of some things. The smallest bone, if you divide it, it won't be bone anymore. But kind of matter as such, he said... Uh, if a particular atom has a branched shape, his uh, example goes, the twigs of the branches would be smaller than the atom as a whole, and at least in principle, uh, they could be broken. Now it's important to note that Descartes, like the Aristotelians, also rejected the Democritean account of indivisible, indestructible atoms. Unlike many in the 17th century and since, Goudin wasn't very interested in this difference the Dominicans still saw Descartes and Newton just as much as Gassendi as Epicureanizing. Though the indivisibility of atoms was a major concern of Aristotle, and as we just saw, it was a point taken up by Godin against the atomists, our French Dominican thought that the real problem here was the reduction of material substances to matter in motion, the mere texturing of something more fundamental and more real. He invokes the church fathers who opposed ancient materialism and pointed out that they saw the view of material reality as nothing but the play of corpuscles as leading to a low view of God, the creator. This argument is based upon the Thomistic idea that life is better than non-life, and if animals and plants are just machines, then God created a lot fewer living things. The concern for some phenomena of nature, like animal life, and cognition and principles surrounding the divisibility of quantity were fundamental. But Godin says that the whole business, totum, totum negotium, comes down to a fundamental issue, substantial generation. So the opening lecture today uh, is exactly where uh, the 17th century Thomas went. The whole business is based on substantial generation. Did new substances come into reality or not? When animals were formed or when they died, did this involve new substances coming into being or going out of being, being generated or corrupted? For Descartes and Gassendi, uh, these Thomas said, the idea that these newly formed animals were new substances was fundamentally an illusion. It was just the rearrangement of extend, extended, extended substance. The death of a dog or a horse or a cat was essentially the local motion or rearrangement of corpuscles whether atoms or Cartesian particles. To provide an anchor to the Aristotelian argument for substantial generation, Godin actually points to self-reflection. He says, and I'll quote at length, as far as experience, in the first place it is well known by anyone who is conscious of himself that he is a substance, for a human being is not a mode or accident of some other thing, but a thing subsistent in itself and an acting thing. But this person also knows that he was not always in the nature of things, but was produced newly, de novo, through change. Yet this change by which we began to be human beings cannot be conceived as local motion or a mere modification of existing substance, but as a true production of a new substance. And... Godin goes on to say that the realization that this is true of a human being who is conscious of himself can render more than plausible the rather basic experience of animal and then even inorganic substances being generated or corrupted. What is interesting is that while the reality of substantial generation is the whole business, a reality that requires the Aristotelian conceptions of matter, form, potency, and act, all of which were discussed beautifully this morning... Goudin asserts that all philosophers really acknowledge the principles of matter and form. Uh, this is a different sort of narrative than we get today, where we say that many of the new philosophers of the 17th century simply rejected formal causality and the traditional fourfold causation of Aristotle. Now, Goudin would largely agree, but he says that the problem is not as much the rejection of hylomorphic accounts of reality uh, as. Uh, the misidentification of matter and form by non-Aristotelians. For instance, he says that Democritus and Epicurus see atoms as the matter of all things and the disposition of the atoms uh, uh, as the form. He says that Descartes sees the particles as the matter and the laws of motion as the form. Whether they like it or not, All agree, Goudin says, that a material principle must be granted through which all things arise or come to be, and all agree at some point that there is a formal principle through which all things are diversified and are constituted in a determinate way of being, the natural kinds that we talked about earlier. The central difficulty is then not defending the notions of materiality and formality in the abstract, but rather explaining the nature of prime matter at substantial form, which is obviously an issue a bit too complex to be handled satisfactorily this afternoon, but perhaps we could talk about some of the things I said about prime matter and uh, substantial form uh, in the Q&A. Uh, the most interesting point, I think, in Goudin is that he points out that other scholastics, and not only the 17th century philosophers, uh, had really failed to see prime matter as pure potency. He said there was a tendency when we imagine substantial form and prime matter to think of them as two actual substances that are kind of heaped together or linked together, bound together. And he said that that's a deep error, and that we need to use intelligence to recognize the way in which substantial form and prime matter are principles that are like that are truly unified uh, in the composite. And if we don't do that, uh, he said he suggests the same objections against atomism, against elements being actually present in the compound, could be brought against those other scholastic accounts of prime matter, where there's some other substance, partial substance, in the composite, uh, and you don't have that real uh, unicity uh, of substantial form. And so uh, Goudin, once he establishes against the corpuscularians uh, that substance is unified in this way uh, and that there is substantial generation, he was perfectly willing to talk about particles. Goudin touched on this issue in his treatment of how all extended substances are composed of parts that are always divisible in principle. Goudin's objector points out that it seems unintelligible that a grain of wheat could be divided for all of eternity into smaller parts without coming to some last indivisible point at which division absolutely ceases. Now he's willing to acknowledge that it won't be wheat anymore but that you could keep on going uh, is something that he says is marvelous but true. As an example to make such a view plausible, Goudin points to an animal, a mite, which is smaller than a grain of wheat. Such an animal has integral parts, some sort of heart, digestive organs, nerves, and so on. And each of these parts has a great abundance of animal spirits and humors, fluids, and so on, which would apparently also have integral parts. I think this idea of integral parts might be worthy for some more discussion. And he says that any of these particles, these little parts, would consist of other little parts. So our French Dominican then shores up his opinion with his own experience of looking through a microscope and seeing all the little animicule, all these little animals bristling with small hairs, He says that these little microscopic entities make the mite look like an elephant in comparison. So you have this tiny mite, smaller anamicale, hairs on the anamiculae, and he's wanting to go and keep on going further. The main problem for Goudin is not thinking of these tiny, tiny particles, but rather uh, thinking of the larger structure as merely a heap or texture, rather than something produced by the agency, say, of its mite parents, that then can be examined down to the smallest integral parts. Uh, Piccinardi takes up this idea of the smallest parts of organic life in a way that might challenge some of the assumptions of Needham's fine piece if you're able to take a look. And this goes to the problem of homogeneity. Like, do mixtures need to have homogeneity? Uh, Piccinardi does think that elements are homogeneous, but he thinks that not all mixtures are. Uh, as, as the previous lecture points out, Uh, And Pichinardi says, animals and plants are mixtures. Uh, And of course, they have parts that are of a different specific character from one another. Lungs, hearts, livers, etc. in animals. Uh, And he says that uh, even though the blood of a cat and the nerves of a cat have a different character, they are continuous with one another as parts of the same cat. So you get this differentiation, but this unity and continuity in as much as we have a unified substance. Uh, And again, perhaps that might be analogous to some ways that we think of inorganic substances. So just a few concluding remarks. Perhaps one might think that these three Dominicans offer uh, not very many surprises. Thomas in the 17th century defended the anti-reductionism of Aristotle from corpuscularians like Gassendi and Descartes. But I think that their dialectical engagement with 17th century objections might show that DeWolf was incorrect in thinking that early modern scholasticism was largely the source of its own failure. If these tomas were at least at several points capable of showing conceptual problems with Cartesianism and of integrating their own observations through the microscope into their account of material things, then we should probably ask richer questions about the supposed decline of scholasticism in the 17th and 18th centuries. Scholastics is not, they did not retreat to exclusively theological objections to corpuscularianism nor did they merely quote the text of Aristotle as a final authority and they certainly didn't refuse to look through microscopes and telescopes. With reference to recent experiments and discoveries, these Dominicans offered a similar philosophical defense of the unity of the substances in our experience, especially living things that Aristotle had made in the 4th century BC. And the debate between anti-reductionism and reductionism, or anti-materialism and materialism, it's not about ancients versus moderns. Uh, It's a perennial issue in Western philosophy that has had its ebbs and flows. And once we come to grips with that fact, it might allow us to remember that objections to a mechanistic or materialist account of nature have continued without interruption, really, since the 17th century. Putting aside Leibniz's attempt to reconcile Plato, Aristotle, and early modern science, one can look to a leading Romantic philosopher and Catholic thinker of the early 19th century, Friedrich Schlegel, who saw the modern chemistry of Lavoisier as advancing our understanding of nature by analyzing and decomposing solid bodies into different forms of a gaseous element. And this destroys forever, he says, the appearance of rigidity and petrification which the corporeal mass of visible nature present to our observation. Uh, many Germans actually saw Lavoisier's chemistry as pushing against a purely mechanistic uh, account of nature. Later in the 19th century, some Neoscholastics quite understandably distinguished between philosophical atomism and atoms as the elements of bodies pursued by physicists and chemists. This allowed them to continue the opposition to democracy and atomism in a metaphysical sense for all the reasons discussed above while acknowledging the achievements of 19th century chemistry. Uh, And finally, one of the greatest scientists of the 20th century, Werner Heisenberg, said in Physics and Philosophy that, in the philosophy of Democritus, the atoms are eternal and indestructible units of matter. They can never be transformed into each other. With regard to this question of elementary particles as indestructible, modern physics takes a definite stand against the materialism of Democritus and for Plato and the Pythagoreans. So if Heisenberg can speak so firmly about the conflict between democracy and materialism and modern science the Thomist opposition to what they saw as a revival of Democratian and Epicurean views of nature may not have been as philosophically and scientifically fruitless as even sympathetic scholars have suggested. So I trust that this brief survey of 17th century Thomist discussions of elements, particles, and atoms can enrich our narratives of the scientific revolution These early modern Thomists were addressing how to reconcile our basic experience and conceptualization of the world as constituted by unified substances that are generated and corrupted with the experimental and rational challenges that might be brought against such an account. And I think we can benefit from such a dialogue with the defenders of the Aristotelian account of nature who directly confronted the scientific revolution. In so doing, we can not only learn from their mistakes, but also gain insight into the real character Uh, Of the controversy, the whole business that shaped modern science. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Gaetano, for that very uh, interesting talk. So, open the floor to any sort of questions about uh, anything that was raised uh, raised by this talk. Sort of helping, um, you know, to address science, too at that time? As, as, that's a great question. I, as far as I understand, I haven't read Attorney Patris in a while, the encyclical that yeah. revives Thomism. But I think he's quite clear that uh, the philosophical principles of Thomas Aquinas uh, and the scholastics and the perennial philosophy must be integrated with the discoveries of, of modern science. And I don't know if he's referring to this problem Directly, but a number of Thomas, right at that time were doing that very thing. So DeWolf, who's you know, one of the greatest historians of medieval philosophy, says, uh, you know, he says you know, the Scholastics should have just dropped the four elements and moved on. So that's his take on that. Uh, there are others who said, no, there's actually something really conceptually rich here. And we need to dig a little bit deeper. Uh, later on, Joseph Babbage and others. Uh, and then there's those who said, well, there's the philosophical atomism which we'll still object to, and that's what Aristotle and Aquinas were really concerned about, which is reducing everything just to these indivisible particles and thinking of all of our experiences as a heap, but while at the same time saying, yeah, but we now use the word atom for good or for ill to talk about uh, these kind of, you know, the end of chemical analysis and so on, and uh, that uh, even using that term is something we can do. I was surprised, I mean, what's really interesting is the person who makes that distinction, maybe not for the first time, is uh, uh, Edouard, uh, uh Hugon, who's one of the architects of the 24 Thomist Theses, which is, you know, this pretty you know, conservative gesture of defending Thomistic Orthodoxy, but he's saying, let's distinguish philosophical and uh, scientific atomism. And the latter, keep on pursuing it. The former, we're gonna keep on with that fight. 2 part question okay um, in parallel to the four elements in the natural realm mm-hmm. uh, it seems to me that the principles of male and female could be analogs hmm. within the realm of life biological sciences much like you were saying that within the, the natural world you don't see pure elemental fire pure elemental air etc would there be space within scholasticism to say that the human body, the human form, is not going to be pure male or pure female, but, for example, within neuroscience right now, there's this idea of gender mosaic composition, hmm. where brains have different ratios of essential male and essential female hmm. properties, or would that just be totally incoherent scholasticism? No, that's, it, I, it, there is language of act, active and passive, which, as I mean, I don't know if the connections are explicit, but in accounts of reproduction, a sort of active role for the male and a passive role for the and, and so on is, is something that's part, as, as far as I understand, of, of uh, scholastic biology. Uh, I mean, I think that, broadly speaking, that sort of thing would be resisted, you know, for ethical and other sorts of reasons. But, I mean, it's maybe worth noting. I was just reading... Uh, John Scotus or Eugena, who's not a Thomist, and obviously is writing in the early Middle Ages, but I mean he has a notion of uh, you know the binary of male and female as some as suboptimal, right? The, the number two for him is kind of a problem because you don't have harmony, uh, and so uh, you know there were discussions of maleness and femaleness as in some ways imperfections in some early medieval discussions, but I, my sus- suspicion is that those were seen as relatively heterodox uh, in the 13th century and beyond. But again, I don't know uh, the details of, of that of that debate or that discussion. My apologies. Now you spoke about uh, 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 concern of the tendency among the contemporary scholars to uh, reduce matter to a kind of simple or incomplete substance. Well, what do you think is the historical motive for moving away from seeing matter as a principle which uh, com- comes in composition with form to make a substance and seeing it as like a, a, a thing in itself. Why, yeah. why is there a move away from that? But why is there a move from, from seeing it as a principle? Yeah, towards. Well, their account is that it's, uh, it's y- uh, using the imagination rather than intelligence you know, that You you want to imagine, like, okay, so here's the prime matter, here's the form forming it, and then that creates this kind of bundling image. That's one way that they account for it. Of course, historically speaking, uh, that's, as far as I understand, that John Duns Scotus and others who are pushing in a different direction away from thinking of prime matter as simply pure potency aren't doing it because of failure of... Like of using their understanding, and intelligence. I, I, w- I wouldn't say even in this uh, uh, great space, uh, but rather uh, through certain concerns about divine omnipotence. Right? That uh, you know, can God create prime matter as such? Uh, you know, so that and he wants to say, well, yes. Whereas the Thomists argue that, well, no. If you really understand that prime matter is pure potency, and these Thomists keep on fighting for that, even God. Can't create pure potency as such, because anything is going to have a substantial form um, uh, in in this in this realm. So uh, that's, as far as I understand, one of one of the historical bases for that shift. Um, and then uh, in the in the 14th century, you know, th- there's all these really interesting debates about uh, the continuum. Uh, going on between William of Ockham and others, so William of Ockham, as far as I understand, wants to say, uh, you know, that um, you know he he rejects any well he he rejects any kind of points at all, at all within within a substance, and and he really wants to sort of flatten out the sort of extension of matter, from what I understand. But like John Wycliffe, for instance, in Oxford, uh, is saying that um, you know a line is constituted only by indivisible. So, you know, I, I think that the uh, debates about, you know, exactly how substantial form and prime matter operate are being debated. And again, the, the relevance there is that John Wycliffe or something is saying that, you know, if you really dig deep, matter is just a kind of uh, infinite number of indivisible particles. Right? So that's, that's not going to give him the resources to think of it in terms of pure potency and, and, and substantial form in the in the traditional way. So there are these late medieval developments going in multiple different directions that, that I'm still trying to get a hold of. But again, the, the key moment, I think, is one of the key moments is Scotus and and saying that according to divine omnipotence, God could create. And so then you want to reify whatever that is that is prime matter so that it could be uh, created by God. Um, I just wanted to elaborate a little bit more about the integral parts yeah. integral parts and the existence of integral parts like defining these um with the unity of substantial form. Right. As as I understand it, uh the the argument I think that you know like my heart uh is not an accident. Right? It it is uh a part of the structure that it that is kind of concomitant with or you know that follows from my substantial form right, that forms my matter, structures my matter in a human way, with lungs and hearts and, and so on and so forth. And so you know, those are not accidents. They're a part of the substance, uh, as I understand it. Uh, and then, But then you could keep on saying, well, you know, the, the integral parts of the human are these organs. But then you could talk about the integral parts of those organs, and then you could keep on going further and further. Uh, and again, that, I think, moves beyond the, are these substances or or accidents? Uh, is this you know, matter or form? This is another category that I think does a lot of work to account for uh, structure along with continuity. And, and, and the continuity is that, well, my heart is a... It's, it's my heart. It's, it's, it's a human heart, and my lungs are a human lung. And there's no kind of discontinuity in my humanness as we move from one organ to the next. Um, is that... you know? So I think that... I, and I wonder if that category you know, might be somewhat fruitful for thinking of the structure of inorganic things. Instead of thinking of mixtures as purely uh, homogeneous, which is what the elemental uh, is in Aristotelianism and in, in, in these Thomists, um, you know, and we have reasons to believe that, you know, th- that we don't have that kind of homogeneity, well, you know, what's at stake in saying, okay, well... Uh, even these kind of the lowest level things are not purely homogeneous, but are still sub- have a kind of uh, have that kind of character and then they have these integral parts that are sort of uh, follow from the structure given to that matter by its substantial form uh, and that would be something I think Again, I'm just entertaining as I've been reading all this stuff that I think might be it's something that has only been discussed a bit, as far as I could tell, in the in the literature. The the discussion of particles and so on tends to go to these minima naturalia, which again you have minima elephants. That's not really what we're talking about. And the elements have all these other problems, right? They're in everything. But this integral parts idea, I think, has some uh, maybe has some uh, cash value. And then another question: Is it the case that some of these people? in the discussion with known scientists at the time? And the scientists, did they understand that they were helping them do science? Or did they think that they would be distracted from doing science by discussion these yeah, people? Secondly, in the rewriting of the history of development of science, is there a revival or a, re- a better telling so that classicism gets a better part in the beginnings of modern science and not a not as part? Uh, that's a great, great, great questions. Um, so did they see themselves as being distracted, and were there dialogues There, there, there were some dialogues, um, and uh, some of these guys even talk about uh, you know engaging in debates uh, in public with some of these figures. Maybe not all the most the figures that I 'm studying are not debating with the best known figures and this is part of a longer uh, tradition. I mean you know, in my study of the University of Padua, which you know, is you know, a very important place for botany and anatomy, there's remarkable dialogue between the friars and the early anatomists and botanists. Uh, I read this lovely story of a theologian who was going to give a lecture on the third day of creation, and he went down to the botany gardens to consult with the botanist about what, he, what he's discovered and what he's working on. So so that kind of dialogue did exist, but I, I, mean, I think in this moment, the 17th, 18th centuries, there is a bit of hostility, again, not because, oh, they're discovering new things about nature, but because they thought, they saw this as a revival of what they saw as outdated, uh, refuted philosophical perspectives from the pre-Socratics, um, and the scientists in response at times did say precisely what you're suggesting. Like this is a distraction. Um, I think Robert Boyle, you know, if if I recall, puts it pretty clearly when he says, "Well, look, there's all these debates about prime matter, substantial form, and so on and so forth. Isn't it just such? It's 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 so much simpler, right? To think of." of all of these activities you know, along the lines of you know, uh, you know, a, a billiard, billiard balls on the table bumping into each other. That's just much clearer to the imagination. You can conceive of that much more effectively. So those kinds of arguments that this is a waste of time and let's have you know, clarity at the expense of you know, addressing some of the fundamental problems that uh, uh, F- uh, Father James mentioned earlier this morning is something that uh, was part of the debate, part of the controversy and the hostility in the 17th and 18th centuries. Francis Bacon's very clear about this is like you know, who cares about all these debates because the point of his kind of science is relieving man's estate, right? Is improving the world. So these questions about, you know, is H2O three things or one thing is just something Francis Bacon certainly would have really no time for. Descartes certainly and Newton would have had time I think for some of those discussions, as far as the history of science I think uh, it's still it 's still a pretty slow process when you read I think really you know very good historians of science, um, at least in my opinion, they still tend to have pretty caricatured views of what the Scholastics actually held um, and uh, but I think that that is it 's improving uh, I think because we 're not so content with the rupture narrative of the early Enlightenment, uh, you know, partly because of you know, postmodernism and so on and so forth, we're saying, well, what were these discourse communities actually doing and why were they antagonizing each other and what was, this, what was really at stake here? Uh, and so I think there are some really uh, good developments. Of, co- of course William, William Wallace and others as Dominican is writing on Galileo and Thomism, and that's wonderful stuff, but even within the sort of mainstream you have Stephen Gowkroger and Daniel Garber and others uh, Roger Ariew, who are looking at 17th century philosophy and science against the backdrop of the Scholastics, and not just Aquinas, but the Scholastics of the 16th, 17th centuries, but all of them describe this as a new, a really a new thing, and I think it's going to be helped by, I mean, if I'm, you know, Google Books, right? To, to to read these books, I would have had to go to. Uh, to Italy or France or so on 15 years ago and I have them as PDFs on my computer. So I think there's the access to these academic debates that are not the cutting edge original contributions is I think going to really pick up now that there's such easy access to these materials. So I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged that this might get better. Alright, well why don't we uh, take a moment there I well, so, uh, thank Dr. Gritano once, once again